Hey everybody, this is the final episode of season three. We have a number of podcasts already recorded for season four, so please subscribe so you get them when they're released. Follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes. You know, I told our people in the last election cycle, I said, I think the people who, who should be most upset in America about racial injustice should be Christian Republicans. And, and the people who should be most upset about the injustice of abortion should be Christian Democrats. Today's guest is Scott Sauls. We've been friends for kind of close to 30 years. He's the lead pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church, a very influential church in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a gifted author. He's written books like A Gentle Answer and Jesus Outside the Lines. I'm delighted to have Scott with us today. From the Center for Faith and Work here in St. Louis, this is Working with me, your host, Dan Doriani. Here we strive to fire the imagination of Christians who long to practice their faith in the workplace. Through conversations with doctors, athletes, teachers, executives, and more, we seek to engage those who desire to do significant work practice love and justice in their work and who dare to change their corner of the world through that work. I'm glad to uh, receive as my guest today, Scott Sauls, a man I've known for a long time and have always uh, respected and and treasured through the years. Scott, you are a Covenant Theological Seminary graduate. I met you in a Greek class a long time ago. Uh, Then you planted a church, really two churches in Kansas City, very boldly, God bless that. And then you came to St. Louis and you planted another church, a Riverside Church. And then you went to New York City and were part of the uh, the great enterprise of Redeemer, along with your friend and mine, Tim Keller. And then God called you to Nashville around 10 years ago, something like 10 years ago. And God has uh, really strengthened, blessed, used your, your ministry in the city there. It's, uh, it's a large church. You've planted churches. Uh, as you've uh, led there, you've become a blogger in all sorts of venues. You've written several books. We'll talk about all three of them at least a little bit. Um, but I also I kind of want you here, not just because I like you, but because your church has a lot of leaders in it. And this podcast is called Working, and it's about applying our faith to our work. So I'm delighted to have you address how the faith applies to work. Say a couple things about yourself. What do you, what do you want to say, Scott, as we get started? Well, I'm a, I'm a longtime disciple of Dan Doriani, uh, who uh, taught me how to interpret the New Testament and uh, taught me about how to be a, a faithful uh, family guy and uh, who's been a loyal friend to me for many, many years. So, so I, I love uh, getting to do this together with you, Dan. And so much of who I am uh, as a minister and as a person uh, is indebted to you and your leadership in my life and to your friendship over the years. Uh, and, and of course, Debbie and the girls as well. So uh, thank you for that. Um, you know, like you said, I'm, I've been uh, the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church, uh, which is a PCA church in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, we are now a multi-site church. We have four different locations, uh, each of which has its own dedicated leadership, uh, all under the same vision and elder board. And uh, we also, which might be of interest to your listeners, Dan, we, we started an organization out of our church called the Nashville Institute for Faith and Work under the leadership of a woman named Missy Wallace, who now runs the Global Faith and Work Initiative for Redeemer City to City, and very much a, a fan of, of what you're 
uh, trying to communicate through vehicles like this. Uh, I'm married to Patty, uh, celebrated our 26th anniversary a couple of days ago, and we have two daughters. So yeah, Dan officiated our wedding, and uh, we have two daughters, Abby, who is now 23, uh, all grown up, working for Mission to the World in Atlanta, about to get married in March, and Ellie, who is a sophomore at Auburn University. So we have a very full life and full hearts. Yeah, that's great. And uh, it is a pleasure to not only know you, but also uh, Patty, your girls, I don't know your girls quite as much now, young ladies, but uh, it's been delightful mm-hmm. to watch you and Patty have a great home and a great marriage yeah. throughout these years. So I want to I jump uh, straight to the kinds of things you say and do that, that are helpful to people as they try to put their faith to work. And in your book, A Gentle Answer, which, is, which has been widely read, almost the first thing you say in the book is, to our great surprise, for the first time maybe in human history, hate is now an asset. You say this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. It's a very remarkable statement and of course sets up what you want to say. Why would you start a book with a line like that? And, and how would you like the people that you minister to, the people you disciple in the media and in politics to understand and counteract that tragic reality that, that hate is sometimes viewed as an asset. Yeah, well, that that is actually a quote that um, that I got from John Perkins mm-hmm. uh, on one of one of his visits here to to our community in Nashville. Uh, he he made that statement uh, to a room full of leaders, uh, and it was it was right in the middle of his his talk, uh, this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. And he's talking about how outrage is um, is monetized. It is uh, it's manipulated. It's it's essential fuel. It's essential oxygen for marketing and advertising. If any of your listeners have uh, seen the Netflix movie called The Social Dilemma, right. uh, which is, uh, you know, former, you know, dot com. Uh, social media executives uh, who out of conscience left their former organizations because of the way that they manipulated people's outrage in order to drive advertising. And of course, um, it's hard to find any more objective news reporting because now really what we have is a lot of editorializing the, uh, on news channels and news outlets that, that can also fuel outrage and drive up advertising. So people's tendency toward outrage is, is monetized in that way. And so I, I think that's that's one of the things that John Perkins was getting at. But it's not a new phenomenon. I mean, hate has existed ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. I mean, remember Cain murdered Abel, you know, Genesis right. chapter four uh, and all the way up until the present day. And so I, I think that while outrage has always been a human, human problem, I think it's it's more amplified now because of the just, you know, everybody has a brand now. Everybody everybody's ubiquitous. <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're, everybody's everywhere because of social media. And so um, it's just so much easier to amplify the things that we're upset about. And so, you know, New York times talked about outrage porn, uh, you know, as a concept, like people like the anatomy of pornography and the anatomy of gossip and slander and outrage are very similar in right. terms of the way they work in the human heart. They both seek a cheap rush, uh, right. You know, that doesn't cost you anything, but that costs whoever it is that you're objectifying, whatever person or group you're objectifying, it costs them reputation, it costs them, you know, the cost of betrayal or, or any, uh, any number of other things. And so that's a long answer. But, you know, outrage has always been a problem because self-righteousness has always been a problem and sin's always been a problem. It's just, I, I think, a lot more 
popularized now. And I wonder if, if that's the reason why people have fallen in love with Mr. Rogers again. Right. And, and Ted Lasso is one of the most yes. popular theories uh, out there because kindness is, uh, there's such a shortage of kindness and such a deep craving for it. So yeah. it, it is amazing that there was not one, but there were two movies about Mr. Rogers in a span of about eight months. Yeah, that's right. That's and, right. Uh, both of them both, blockbusters. Uh, yeah, they were both very well received, well done. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah. you know, every, people love them. Lasso, of course, is another another great example of that. Um, it is true uh, that, however, I think you and I would agree that although uh, hate and rage are uh, stronger maybe today in some ways in times. It's universal, but but stronger partly because it sells. I mean, if you look at the media, what, what does the media want? The media wants fear and anger. Those are the, those are two of the cheapest motivations. And as you said, they're they're free of personal connection. You you don't when you're angry at somebody, you're not actually angry at them. You're angry at some image or or um distillation of something or other they said or did at some point that you dislike. And so it's radically depersonalizing. So let me just, uh, let me stick with this for a minute. Of course, you and I would probably agree that, that we're all being discipled all the time. And one way we're discipled is by what we receive. You know, we want to be transformed by renewing of our mind and not conform to this age. And if we're watching either MSNBC or Fox, we're being trained to be angry. How can we counteract that? <laughs> it's kind of the thesis of your book to some extent, right? It is. Yeah, McShane, McShane famously said, um, you know, for every one look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. I think you could maybe tweak that a little bit for every, <laughs> for every one look you take at, at things to be, you know, disheartened and discouraged and upset about. Um, you know, take, take 10 looks at Christ, right? Because the more we look at Christ, the more we're going to, we're, the more we're going to address the log than we are the specs. And I think that's the gospel shortage or, or, or short-circuiting of the gospel uh, in, in a lot of our hearts and lives is that we've reversed Jesus's teaching, where now we are so quick to notice and address specs in other people's eyes. And of course, that's a mercy, right? My New Testament professor taught me it's actually a mercy to... to address a speck in somebody else's eye because a speck could lead to an infection, could lead to blindness, right? But Jesus says, before you're able to see clearly enough to do that um, and get yourself in the right frame of mind, the right posture of heart to do that, you've got to deal with the log in your own. And we're, we live in a time now where it's just, um, it's not only common, it's, it's actually popular and considered virtuous to ignore the logs in our own eyes, right? Some, some, uh, one, one sociologist, I can't remember who it was, or a political theorist as well, talked about how partisan politics is, is now um, driven by what he calls uh, package deal ethics, where if, if, you're, if you align with the Democratic Party, you have to 100% align uh, or else you're suspect. Or if you align with the Republican Party, you have to 100% align or else you're suspect. There's no room in any party anymore for self-critique. Uh, and, you know, that makes people like you and me um, a bit homeless in this right. political environment, right? Because, you know, I told our people in the last election cycle, I said, I think the people who, who should be most upset in America about racial injustice should be Christian Republicans. Yeah. Uh, and, and the people who should be most upset about the injustice of abortion should be Christian Democrats. 
because of the log spec principle, right? We, we, we have the emotional freedom to self-critique not only ourselves, but our groups and, and, and our own inconsistencies because the gospel declares us righteous. And so what have we to fear? There's no condemnation in Christ. And so we can own the inconsistencies and even start addressing the inconsistencies on our own side of, of you know, the, the aisle, so to speak, if we're talking politics. But that's just so rare anymore, at least in the public discourse. And, and right. what would be wonderful is if you could, you could get a lot more self-critique and a lot less grenade launching. Um, right. And, you know, if there was more self-critique addressing the logs in our own eyes, you know, maybe we'd put down our grenades and, and more surgically, you know, deal with the specs uh, right. where we see, you know, in other other people's eyes. But I don't even know if that relates to the question you asked. No, it does. But, it but, does. But I, I'm going to go back to your first answer. And that is what we need to do is, is look at Jesus more and look at our opponents less. And, you know, one of the things that I think we would probably agree on is that uh, we view Jesus as our Redeemer, but also as our King. And if Jesus is our King, then our Republican and Democratic, and for that matter, independent leaders are not our King. And, and you know, Jesus is never going to easily fit Republican and Democratic grids. I, I think you and I definitely agree on that. I, I like to point out to my Republican friends that, that the Democrats should be the most pro-life outfit that there is, right? Because... Democrats pride themselves in taking care of the weakest and the defenseless. And who's more defenseless than a child in the womb? Nobody. And of course, Republicans, you know, trumpet, you know, free agency and freedom of of economic activity. And therefore, we should be just so robustly defending the rights of people who've been excised from good education, good preparation, capital, uh, and all the rest, which tend to be minority groups. So, you know, we should, it would be really easy take to that, take that into the, the average. Script. Sorry, go ahead. I'm sorry. Take that into the average evangelical pulpit uh, in America these days, and you, you should wear a helmet. Uh, <laughs> wear, a hel- wear, wear a helmet when you do. Yeah, see, that's why I'm a guest speaker now. You're right. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, what you just said is a very faithful statement. Um, it's, it's, it's the kind of leadership that I certainly want to follow. Uh, is leadership that says those sorts of things. Well, and you do um, say those sorts of things. Critique. So I do say those sorts of things. Uh, and and it's, it's always heartening to hear somebody I respect so much like yourself saying them too. Yeah, well, it's, it's, good, to be, it's good to be partners. And, uh, you know, sometimes if you just keep on outraging people long enough, the people that come to your church go, yeah, what happened to him? What's he so upset about? Oh, he, he says that kind of stuff all the time. You just don't pay attention to it. It's just who he is. It's like, you know... <laughs> He's, uh, he wears plaid shirts, and he shaves his head, and he also says politically strange things. That's just part of the package in our church. Anyway, well, let me, um, let me just ask, let me pretend for a moment that I'm either a politician or I'm a, a media person, and I've come to you, and, and I've heard you, I've, I've read this book, A Gentle Answer, and I've heard you speak about these matters, and I want counsel. I want you to tell me a couple concrete things. And the first thing you say to me is stick closer to Jesus, read the Gospels more, um, understand that all of our life is lived uh, imperfectly and he loves us in our, in our imperfections and you're never going to be the perfect politician or broadcaster. And he's got that. He's got that. He's he's meditating on the Gospels and the whole Bible. But he wants some concrete advice. Scott, what would you say to somebody in these public arenas who is pressed to take sides and, and the people around them are, uh, are grenade launchers 
to use your metaphor. Yeah, yeah, and maybe maybe there's a lot of internal pressure from party or from channel or platform right. to present a, a certain bias um, with their public voice. I, I would say, you know, rather than spouting off the advice I would give from the bleachers uh, yeah. for, you know, these people, I, I would want to recommend uh, a book written by uh, a public official that that I have the privilege of, of pastoring and have the privilege still of being a friend with for seven years here when he was governor of the state of Tennessee, um, before he moved back to Knoxville uh, after completing his second term. And it's Governor Bill Haslam, who has written a book called Faithful Presence. Mm -hmm. And I believe that he is booting off of James Davidson Hunter's um, you know, concept of faithful presence in the public square, uh, specifically as applied to public life in the realm of government and politics. It's one of the most refreshing books uh, I've ever read uh, by somebody in a public office, uh, because you know, one of the beautiful things about him is that he's a he follows Christ before he follows a party, and yet he he's part of a party. Uh, he happens to be a Republican, but he's also a Republican who uh, I believe chairman of the board for World Vision. Uh, he uh, sought to bring uh, to to provide uh, healthcare access to every resident of Tennessee, especially those you know, who are poor and don't have avenues to get health care. Like he, he did things that would be typically associated with, with, with the other party uh, and got, you know, accused of being a, you know, a rhino or a Republican in name only because, because he did things that, that tend to garner sympathy for, you know, from, from, from other parties. He, he is very sympathetic and empathetic toward the refugee situation, right. uh, especially when the Syrian refugee crisis hit and, um, you know, wanted to see, hospitable space for legitimate asylum seekers, you know, in our state and things, things like that. And some of the things he was able to pass and other things, you know, got blocked, but, you know, bottom line is that you've got a man who is following Christ, um, which, which means that sometimes he's going to be at odds with his own party, right. Or, or at least with some people in his own party. Um, we also brought in, um, a, another friend of mine named Michael Ware, who, who is a lot like Bill Haslam in that he, he leads with his Christianity. Uh, he's a Democrat. He actually served as an aide in the Obama administration uh, many years ago. And yet he departs from party platform in that he is decisively and publicly pro-life, uh, mm -hmm. you know, on behalf of the unborn. And so he and another guy named Justin Gibney, who you may be familiar with from the Ann campaign, they, they, Michael and Justin actually wrote a book called, I think it's like Conviction and Compassion or Compassion and Conviction. Mm -hmm. And, and they're writing a book about how to have a comprehensive, essentially how to have a comprehensive life life ethic as a Christian. And I think the phrase they use is from womb to tomb. Mm -hmm. um, and so if, if we are from womb to tomb, if we are comprehensive in our life ethic, uh, if we are for the unborn, if we are for those who have disabilities or special needs, if we are for immigrants and refugees who are legitimately seeking asylum um, from violence and other such things. Uh, if, if we're talking about the elderly, if we're talking about, you know, Alzheimer's patients, et, et cetera, you know, Christian, uh, Christians are, are meant to be decisively for all of those groups. And, and that's always going to require some sort of tension with every political party. Right. Um, and, and they do a great job just, you know, kind of painting a vision of what that can look like in, in public life. So I'd rather kind of popularize yeah. other people's work. That's than, good. Than, that's good. And speak from the bleachers, but yeah. Uh, turn to the experts and uh, experts who uh, who have more experience 
and have focused more than we can as pastors. So um, your last couple comments make me think of a slight shift in direction here, and that is, uh, you know, again, sticking with a gentle answer. Uh, you also talked about defending people who've suffered violence. Um, gentle answer, but it's also true that we have to be strong. We have to be tough. On page 135 and 153, you say a couple things that I want to call uh, your attention to. And, I, you know, he, we have here a little, a little note about people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Martin Luther. And you say, you know, Bonhoeffer was a country in, in his opposition to Hitler. Martin Luther in his opposition to the sins and abuses of the church. Mother Teresa in her opposition to conditions of poverty and starvation. Newton and Wilberforce in their opposition to the slave trade, Martin Luther King Jr. in his opposition to racism and equality, Sojourner Truth in her opposition to slavery. And, and then church councils have often opposed error, theological error. So uh, when we say we want to have a gentle answer, that certainly doesn't mean we uh, lack spine. This is an obvious point. I know that's not debatable. Um, but, you know, these were sometimes people who are pretty fierce, and yet uh, you cite them in a book about gentleness. I mean, Luther, we probably wouldn't approve of all the rhetoric Luther used, uh, but Mother Teresa also was perfectly willing to stand up and offend people, and yet we would consider them gentle. Would you agree with that? Is that you, you seem to indicate that they fit in this, the paradigm that'll, that uh, promotes gentleness in the pursuit of truth and love and uh, righteousness and justice. Yeah, so I, I think I think one of the, the iconic examples of um, of what we're talking about here, uh, if we're talking about blending grace and truth together, as Jesus did, right? right. Scripture say, came full of grace, right. and truth, um, not never one at the expense of the other, um, conviction and compassion, right. law and love. But, you know, consider the kindness and severity of God. Right. Uh, that's that's you know, the text I was thinking of. Jesus is not only a, yep. a gentle. Yeah, yeah. You know, Christ is not only a, a gentle priest, he's also a, 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 a an in-your-face prophet yeah. uh, and White a ruling king. He's all three of those offices, right? right. And and so uh, I, I think maybe in recent American history, at least in my lifetime, one of the most iconic examples is somebody that, that John Perkins marched with, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who had this rare combination of always holding out hope for reconciliation, justice, peace, repair, etc., uh, while also being willing to say the hard things. And of course, his letter from a Birmingham jail, right. jail does so famously, right. where where he's he's reaching out, you know, with the olive olive branch, attacking problems instead of attacking people, and inviting. Right the people who are perpetrating those problems to come on over to his side and help attack the problems, right? And the tone is lament more than uh, condemnation or rage or, That's or correct. criticism. That's correct. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's, a tone, it's a tone of lament uh, and, and also one of hope. Uh, right. One of his, his most famous books, a collection of his essays, is called A Testament of Hope. And, right. and he was a very hopeful person, uh, even though he was also a very mistreated person, and sometimes a, a redemptively and righteously ang angry person right. and a deeply flawed person and sinful person in right. certain areas of his personal life. Right. Uh, like my wife, Patty, calls a mixed bag, right? Right. Um, but this whole notion that, that he called peaceful resistance, you're, you're putting two things together that, that serve one another. Right. Peaceful serves resistance in that it, 
it helps you to earn the right to be heard in that I'm, I'm, I'm not attacking you. I'm attacking what you're doing. Uh, I'm attacking the pain you're causing. I'm not attacking you. Right. That's a peaceful form of also resistance and, you know, hating what is evil, clinging to what is good at the same time. And, and so, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the, you know, kind of deer in the headlights looks I get in conversations like this about the book, a gentle answer a lot of times, understandably so, you know, podcast hosts, they don't have time to read every book. And right. so, so they'll, you know, they'll glance through the introduction, they'll look through the table of contents. And a lot of times those who haven't read the book will say, what about, what's, what's going on with chapter five? Like, like gentle people do anger well, what, what, what on earth? And, and it really does, you know, it, I'm trying to draw a distinction between raging anger and righteous anger. Anger is a right. lot like fire, right? They're really healthy life-giving uses to it. And they're really damaging, destructive demoralizing uses of fire and the same is true of anger right well, um, we would probably agree you cite uh, rachel denholander and uh you know she's a, a really good example of someone who used anger correctly and I, but you know she was speaking up not only for herself i mean by the time uh the scandal of mistreatment of of uh, female gymnasts by uh, uh dr nasser i forget his name all of a sudden but anyway um, you know, she was speaking up for many, many people, dozens of others. Our anger tends to be selfish and self-concerned. And the righteous people that we've talked about, Martin Luther King Jr. and others, Martin and um, Martin Luther, for that matter, were upset for the sake of other people and to defend other people. And, and to say, uh, you know, as I know you have this in your book, I, have, I, I underlined it, enough is enough. But not strictly for myself. It's for myself and for others. It, it may be for myself, but it's for people who are being mistreated. So I was very glad for that section of your book because a lot of Christians tend to have the idea that, uh, you know, a Christian leader should never be strong, should never speak uh, sharply uh, about a cause. And I think you and I agree that it's absolutely necessary to have an exclamation point at the events, end of a sentence that says enough is enough. And I think it boils down... Um... Dan, to really the kinds of people that we express anger with. Uh, we we want to be really careful uh, uh, and really, you know, circumspect about coming down hard on people that Jesus tend to be pretty tender with. Right. Like, let's take, for example, sexually compromised, you know, compromised people, compromised, yeah. broken people, woman caught in the act of adultery, the prostitute in Luke 7, Lepers. And Jesus, he, you know, he, he, he didn't lepers. He didn't shrink back from saying, "Leave your life of sin," but but he took such a tender approach because um, there's some kind of bruise on the soul of a sexually, you know, broken and sexually immoral person that he he was able to recognize and discern, I suppose. But but when he's confronted with religious leaders in the community who would come down hard on right. sexually broken people, he he let them have it. Um, you know, whitewashed dooms, you know, open sepulchers, your hearts are, you know, your mouths are open graves, you know, and so on. And so I, I think that it's, it's really important when we talk about self-righteousness um, and when we talk about uh, abuse, th those, are the, those are the areas of, you know, essentially treatment of other people that Jesus just had no tolerance for. Whereas, you know, sexual brokenness, he had a lot more patience, it seems. Yeah. In general, he was. Uh, I, I did a, a study of this once, actually prompted by something one of my students said. 
that when Jesus talks to people, no matter how sinful they are, that ask a sincere questions, he's about as patient as you can be. And when the disciples ask questions, he, he kind of asks the question, <laughs> what, what mood are you in? What do you need right now? And then mm-hmm. with, uh, with Pharisees and Sadducees and rulers and so forth, there's a strong tendency for him to not even answer their questions and say things like, you know, can't you discern the sign of the times? I, re- I already answered this question for you. You, you have your answer. What, what do you want? You want more signs? I gave you signs. Go away. Mm-hmm. And it, it does remind us that, uh, it, of course, it doesn't mean magically that people are terrible sinners will be tender and humble and receptive, but there is uh, there are certain things, and not only sexual sins, but also people who are addicted in certain moods are extremely receptive to um, to tender treatment and kind words. Not always, but sometimes they are. Yeah, so you also stress the need to be vulnerable, which I think connects to this, especially in your book, Weakness to Strength, which I enjoyed. I read it a few years ago by now. Uh, and I didn't reread it for this, uh, but I, I, I like your emphasis on vulnerability. May I ask you to comment on uh, the fact that leaders are often afraid to be vulnerable? You know, if we confess a vulnerability, we're afraid that somebody will take it and weaponize it, uh, misuse it, take it out of context and say, see, you already admitted you have this problem, et cetera. And I don't disagree with you at all. I want you to encourage people, if you're, if you're interested in that, um, who are maybe strong, and flawed, which applies to a lot of people. How and why is vulnerability and honesty about our weaknesses important? Um, it's a great question, and I, I, I think we, we only need to start with Scripture yeah. and, and look at the example that was set for us by Christ himself. He, he came in weakness, uh, and you look at Paul and how he openly you know confesses his coveting in Romans 7, or you know, you've got the whole, you know, chief of sinners speech in right. in First Timothy, and uh, there just seems to be a lot of willing self-disclosure, not not to draw attention to themselves as much as to provide in themselves a, a picture of what redemption under Christ looks like. Of course, Christ didn't need his own redemption, but 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 Paul did, and you know, you look at even things like the genealogy of Christ, which which you know, in those days was like your resume, right? It wasn't what you've accomplished. Right. It was who you were from that, that credentialed you. And unusually so, Jesus's resume, his genealogy includes women. Uh, and were it includes sinful, grossly all sinful. Kinds of, right. Yeah, you got Abraham and Isaac who were terrible husbands at certain points in time. You've got Jacob, who was a liar. You've got Rahab, who was a prostitute. David, David. Sheba. Yeah. Exactly, 100, 100%. And then Christ ends up calling himself the son of David, you know, identifying right. himself with, right. with the adulterer and murderer, who also was a man after God's own heart. Right. But I would also say, too, that, um, you know, you and I were part of a season of St. Louis history and church history in St. Louis that was very tragic. And that was where one of your predecessors at Central Presbyterian Church right. took his own life. Right. Uh, and then shortly after that, another pastor in a, in a connected church took his own life. Right. And the common thread bet- be- between both of them was that their struggles were hidden. Right. Uh, and they were kept hidden. And the suicide note from, from your predecessor uh, at Central Pres Church uh, one of the things he said in his suicide note was that a minister cannot 
admit that he is depressed and right. expect to not lose his ministry. And I thought, oh my goodness, um, is that really what it's come to that, that ministers don't think that they can, you know, shepherds can't be sheep uh, mm-hmm. as well, lest they discredit themselves. And, and there is cert- a certain character calling for those who are in ministry. There's a high bar, but the bar is not perfection. The, the, the bar is self-awareness and humility and, and, um, and substantial righteousness and a work ethic. Yes, but but that's right. Perfect. And everybody's lazy some days. Imperfect pursuit. That's right. But, but, you know, one of the things that we, one of the people that we learned from in this was, um, you know, our mutual friend, Scotty Smith, who, you know, still talks all the time about Jack Miller, who was his mentor. And Jack was very, you know, transparent as well about his weakness. And Paul was transparent about his and the thorn in the flesh and the glory in weakness and the power of God that's made perfect in weakness. And so I tell you a little anecdote for anybody who's like a pastor or a leader of any sort that, that, that is sort of an anchor for me. Two years into my time at Christ Pres, as you know, a lot like Central Pres, it's a lot of the kind of city gatekeepers are here and, you know, CEOs and music industry people and all of that. And it can be a little bit intimidating and you can feel this pressure that you put on yourself. It's not that other people are putting on it, but you, you put it on yourself to, you know, just present as yeah. being more together than you actually There's are. There's a senator here today. That's yeah, that's right. And that's right. And so, and so, so two years into my ministry, I decided that in one of my sermons, cause it fit the text, I was going to disclose to the congregation that I've had, you know, seasonal bouts with anxiety and depression. It's just part of my story. And, and there's this really, you know, imposing guy, you know, business leader, et cetera. I don't know him very well. You know, he's kind of this guy who sits quietly in the back and comes and goes quietly. So he comes up to me and this is one of the first conversations I ever had with him after two years. And he gets in my face and, 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 and I'm wondering, like, is he going to start a petition, you know, to have me driven out of the church? And, and he said, he said, I've been listening to you for two years. And I, I actually think you're a, you're a good communicator, but I'm, I'm entirely unimpressed by that. He said, <laughs> Said, he said, based on the things that you shared today, today is this the day that you have become my pastor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Today is the day that you you became a human being to me. Yeah. And um, I, 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 it's a powerful thing. It I is. mean, it's the best parenting. It's the best leadership in an organization. Yeah. Uh, it's the best way to be a colleague. It's the best way to be a friend. It's the best way to be a pastor is to have a level of appropriate transparency, um, right. not oversharing, but also not undersharing. Yeah, it's not, um, it's not about in us that, and our failures That's either. right, in a way that positions us to point right. to the redemptive grace of Christ and how it is at work in our life in yeah. real time. So, uh, Scott, there are many, many things we could talk about. I have more questions here, um, but I'm gonna, can we go to rapid fire? Absolutely. And this is uh, like, you can't answer for more than 60 seconds. Uh, And if you answer for 10 seconds, I'll keep asking you interesting questions, all right? So the first question is, uh, putting aside all practical considerations, what would you do for one year if uh, career and money and geography were no object? What would you do for one year? Now that both of our daughters are out of the home, uh, I would uh, would travel to, um, to speak at conferences and 
and ministries and churches where where I only had to be on for like an hour and a half, and then I had the rest of the week to enjoy Barcelona. the city that I'm in. Right, right. Um, with with my wife, there yeah. So wherever, uh, yeah. California, New York, you yeah. know, uh, Seattle, wherever. That's um, good. That's what I would. If I could write my ticket for a year, that's what it would. That's be. good. I like it. Um, uh, what do you do to relax? Because of the city that we get to be part of uh, in Nashville, it's a beautiful. Uh, it's just such lovely terrain here with yes. just unlimited miles of hiking trails. And so we love to get out and hike. Yeah. Uh, and we also love to go to live music. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and there's two or three concerts to choose from. It seems almost every night uh, here. Um, so, so those two things are among our favorite things. That's great. Sure. Um, if you had a talented newcomer on your staff or maybe somebody uh, in your orbit one way or another, uh, what would you say to them about pastoral ministry, especially in this realm of helping people in uh, in the public eye, or not? You can you can stay in that area or not. What would you say to a talented newcomer? One or two things. Newcomer to pastoral ministry? Uh, you we're, we're trying to change their corner of the world. It could be a politician, or it could be you know a media person. I'll let you go wherever you want to go. What would you say? Yeah. So if they're if they're a public person, yeah. who has public influence, yeah. be aware that ev almost everything that comes out of your mouth or off of your keyboard is going to get one group of people really excited about your leadership. <laughs> and it's also going to get another people really antagonistic towards your leadership. Yeah. yeah, we have to be ready. Yeah, the human heart is partisan by nature yeah. and uh, is just prone to take a side and to declare enemies yeah. uh, and to declare friends. And so you, you'll always have people who, and, and what, what I, what I'm still learning over time, I mean, I'm 53 years old. I still haven't learned this completely. And that is that excessive flattery yes, and excessive and excessive criticism are both dismissible, uh, yes. that they m both must be dismissed. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it typically is the, the free thinking people in the healthy middle of, of those two extremes that are going to be your best sources of wisdom. Yeah, one of the first things I heard from somebody uh, was, and I didn't know what to make of it at the time, but they were very, it was very pithy. They just said, beware of flatterers. And they just, and then they left. <laughs> they left me to figure <laughs> out what it meant. <laughs> but I think you and I agree as to what it means uh, right now. Uh, what do people get wrong about pastoral work that you would like to correct? It is one of the hardest jobs in the world. And anybody who thinks otherwise has no idea what they're talking about. Uh, and here's another one I would point your listeners to. George Robertson's uh, sermon this year, 2021, at the Evangelical Presbyterian Church General Assembly, uh, the EPC denomination's General Assembly. George Robertson gave a, a sermon out of Jeremiah. And in that sermon, he unpacks the nature of what it's like to be a pastor. Mm. Um, I wonder if that sermon ought to be essential reading for every pastor so that you can know that you're not crazy. Yes. And also to every congregant so you can know how to better support and encourage those who lead, um, especially in the pastoral context. And I, I think what, what folks don't understand about pastoral ministry is that there's a unique spiritual component to, to the attack that comes at pastors that that cannot and must not be underestimated. And so 
the other is that there, there are extraordinary demands that congregations put on pastors. Tom Rayner, uh, you know, this church research expert, did a, uh, a survey of people who were members of churches all over the United States. And he, the survey was essentially, how many hours a week do you think that a pastor should spend studying for sermons, preaching sermons, right, no, yeah. leading worship, doing visitations, et cetera. And his, his conclusion, he averaged it all out. And he said, the average church member in America believes that, that, that the, the pastor should work a minimum of 116 hours a week. Right. And, and so just realize that people, that pastors, when people put demands on us, we want to meet them. Yes. Um, and, and, and so we're also among the most overworked people, but, but, you, but you don't realize it because you don't see most of what we do. And so that's not a pity party at all. I actually love my work. I can't imagine doing anything else. I've never considered getting out of ministry. Right. And, and I happen to be in a very supportive environment of ministry. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not coming into this conversation as any sort of victim or any kind of wounded puppy. I, I'm just telling you, it's really hard. It is hard. Um, there is a reason why 30 plus percent of all pastors have considered getting out of the ministry altogether in the last year and a half. Yeah. Uh, the pandemic has been especially hard. Yeah, because we're asking them to, to do things that are not in their skill set. Uh, just uh, So somebody told me this about the life of a pastor. They said the pastor is like the CEO of a corporation in which he gives the annual address every week, hmm. which I thought was a pretty good analogy, especially in a large church where they expect, you know, uh, I'll just say a bit of a performance. You know, they want it to all ring true. And to That's be right. And you're also, you're also on the hook for other people's performance. Well, if you the are. Music if the music director has an off week, it's not the music director who hears about it. It's you. Yeah. On the other hand, Scott, you have to admit you do get credit for, the, uh, for your staff doing things that you never told them to do. And that is to say they did well. My, here's my all-time favorite. I one time uh, reversed the order of the elements in the Lord's Supper. And a whole uh -huh. bunch of people at Central Press said, oh, he's such a genius. He's so brilliant. He knew that we were getting rope. <laughs> and so he switched it. And I go, no, I just made a mistake. Oh, and he's so humble. He, he's leading us spiritually <laughs> and he's humble. I said, no, no, I just made a mistake. <laughs> they would not, they wouldn't receive it. That's hilarious. It, yeah. I did that at Redeemer once. I did that at Redeemer once where I started with the, like, I'd, I'd set the table and right. passed out, passed the cup out to the entire congregation. Right. And then I realized it before I, you know, invited him. I said, I said, look, some of you have cocktails before dinner. Let's, <laughs> right. let's just, you know, think of it maybe as, you know, Jesus yes. serving the wine first at the wedding instead yes, of the end. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, Scott, it's always good to talk to you. I wish I saw you more often uh, like we did in days past. Um, may God bless you. So excited for the wedding that you've got coming up. And 26 years of For marriage. my daughter, not for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I understand that. I think, yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, I think people know you're not 24 years old. So uh, great to be with you. Thanks for your time, Scott. Thanks, Dan. Absolutely. Working with Dan Doriani is a production of the Center for Faith and Work St. Louis. We seek to promote faithfulness in the workplace, in education, in discipleship, and in the stories of believers who've applied their faith at work. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on your preferred podcast platform. You can visit our website at faithandworkstl.org. There you can subscribe to our podcast, sign up for our newsletter, learn more about Faith and Work cohorts, leave us a message, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Faith and Work STL. 
and find the video version of the show on our YouTube channel. All these links are available in the podcast show notes and on our website. Thanks for listening.